Well, good morning, church. I'm excited to kick off this new teaching series with you this morning that's called Faithful. If you've hung around church very much in your life, you're sure to have heard a lot about the topic of faith. Uh, church people say, just have faith. Invest in your faith. Strengthen your faith. And don't get me wrong, faith is super important. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. But here's something that you need to know about faith that's super important. Your faith is only as valuable as the object of your faith is reliable. Faith only means something if what you're putting that faith in is faithful. Let me illustrate. Let's say that one of my lifelong dreams has been to go skydiving. But I'm kind of cheap, which I actually am. That's not just an illustration. I actually am cheap. And let's say that I don't want to spend all the money to buy a professional parachute. And I've seen parachutes before. I know how they work. So I just take a bed sheet and make my own. Get in uh, the airplane. I got it in my backpack. I jump out. I have complete and total faith that this parachute is going to gently carry me down to a safe landing. What's going to happen? I was wondering if there was going to be like a splat. I don't know what the, what exactly. I'm going to be disappointed is what's going to happen. But it's not because I didn't have enough faith, is it? It's because the object of my faith wasn't reliable. People in our culture tend to say this. Have you heard this statement? It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Have you heard that? Friends, it's not true. It matters a great deal what you believe. It matters a great deal. People around us put their faith in all sorts of things, money, relationships, achievements, status, and more. But the Bible tells us if you put your faith in those things, it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane with a bedsheet parachute on your back. It's not going to end well. But when we put our faith in God, when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we find that he is totally and completely faithful. Amen. Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about four specific ways that God is faithful. This morning, we're going to talk about how God's faithful to meet our deepest need, the need for forgiveness. And this, morning, this uh, sermon this morning, I think, really should come with a little bit of a, a warning on the package because I just got to tell you up front, the first half of it is fairly heavy. It's fairly heavy, but I want you to not shrink back from that. You may feel uncomfortable, but I promise you this is so important. And whether you're here just kind of checking out Christianity or whether you've been following Jesus for many years, I want to encourage you to lean in and listen because I believe that God has something vitally important for us to hear this morning, something beautiful to tell us. Our passage this morning comes from the book of 1 John. We're going to read from the end of chapter 1 and spill over into the beginning of chapter 2. I'll start in chapter 1, verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless the reading of his word. It's been well over four decades, but I still remember the feeling. I was around five years old, and we were over at my aunt and uncle's house, and the adults were visiting in one room, and I was playing in my cousin's room, and for some reason, I was playing with one of these. You know what this is? What is it? 
koozie, yes. We don't have many of these anymore. It is a koozie. I don't know why I was playing with a koozie. Apparently, I was easily entertained. I don't know exactly what I was doing. But for whatever reason, I was being careless. And on accident, I broke the koozie. Tore it right in half. And for the first time in my life, I felt this knot in the pit of my stomach. Guilt and shame. Now, I'd never seen a koozie before. I didn't really know what it was for, but I knew a few things. Number one, I mean, look at it. It's awesome. It's amazing. I knew this must be really expensive. (laughs) Second, I knew it belonged to my uncle. And third, I knew that I had broken it. And I felt ashamed. Now, in that moment, I had a choice to make. I could do one of two things. Number one, I could throw the koozie under my cousin's bed and pretend that nothing had ever happened. Or I could come clean. Well, I wrestled with it for a few minutes, and eventually my guilty conscience won out. And with great fear and trembling, I'm not exaggerating, I was petrified. With great fear and trembling, I went in the other room, walked up to my uncle, and with tears, literal tears in my eyes, I confessed that I had broken his koozie. Well, as you might imagine, my uncle was super gracious. He looked me in the eye and he said, John, thank you so much for telling me. I forgive you. And a wave of relief washed over me. Now, I wish that was the last time I felt that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I wish that was the last time that I did something either unintentionally or intentionally that hurt someone else. But the truth is, it's not. It's not. Time after time in my life, I've made choices, sometimes on accident, sometimes on purpose, that have damaged other people, that have hurt other people. And if I'm honest, most of them have been a lot more expensive than a broken koozie. Time after time in my life, because of my carelessness sometimes, because of my selfishness other times, I have damaged others. And as I've grown older and as I've walked forward in my faith, I've realized that that the damage that I've done to others, which is so significant, is not even the worst part. You know what the worst part is? God created me in his image, and then he's asked me to reflect that image into the world. And in my selfishness, I've refused. Over and over, I've said, no, I'm going to go my way, not your way. And I am guilty. But I'm not the only one, am I? You may not have broken your uncle's koozie, but I bet you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I bet you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Knowing that you've done something wrong and you feel regret, you feel shame, Maybe even some embarrassment. I know what that feels like, and I bet you do too. This morning text tells us that we are not alone in this. This is actually the human condition. Look at verse 8. The Apostle John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then two verses later, If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. He's talking about God. We make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John's not beating around the bush here, is he? He's being pretty clear. He's saying, look, if you say you haven't sinned, you're wrong. We're only fooling ourselves when we claim that, and we're actually calling God a liar. Because throughout Scripture, what has God said about us? He said that we have sinned. If you're reading along with us in the growth guide, and I really hope you are, on Monday you read in Psalm 14 that all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
And then on Wednesday, you read that Paul picked up that same theme in Romans 3 when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All throughout the Bible, we hear that we've sinned. But let's be honest, even if we didn't have the Bible, we would know this, wouldn't we? If you are honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, all of us know that we have thought things, said things, and done things that are wrong. We know that we have sinned. I told you it was heavy, and I'm sorry it gets worse before it gets better, but hang with me. Verse 10 says that, we, uh, that, that we're, we're lying if we say we haven't sinned. In other words, we've done sinful things, we've made sinful choices, but verse 8 is even deeper. I hope you caught this. It says it's a lie to say that we're without sin. In other words, we haven't just committed sins, we are sinners. It's not just behavior, it's identity. We haven't just slipped up. Those choices that we, we've made are a reflection of who we are. You know, we like to paint the world in black and white and say there's good guys and there's bad guys. And coincidentally, we're always on the good guy side. But when we're honest, we realize we're not on the good guy side. All of us have sinned and we are sinners. And so I want to sum this section up with this chilling diagnosis. We have sinned and we are sinners. Everyone in this room, everyone in the world, everyone who has ever lived except for Jesus has made sinful decisions, has committed sinful actions, and has the identity of a sinner. Aren't you glad you came to church today, by the way? You're welcome, everybody. Hang with me, though. Hang with me. Here's why. Because you cannot experience the cure without being honest about the diagnosis. So hang with me. We're going to get there. There is relief coming, but first I want to dig a little bit deeper. You okay? We all right? Okay, let's talk about what sin is. What is sin? This is a really important question because there's a lot of misunderstanding in our culture about what sin is. And sometimes this even slips subtly into the church. There's this impression out there that sin is stepping across an arbitrary line that God put down. So in other words, sometime, long time ago, God was up in heaven and he said, I'm going to make a list of things that are good and things that are bad and there's no real rhyme or reason for it, but here's this list and I'm going to make people do the good stuff, not the bad stuff. And if, I do, if they do the bad stuff, I'm going to get really mad at them. And with this, with this outlook, what that means is that being a Christian means doing the good stuff when you really want to do the bad stuff because we all know that's more fun anyway, or doing the bad stuff and then just saying a quick prayer afterwards and reminding God that it's his job to forgive us. Friends, this is a common view of sin, but I got to tell you, this is a lie. This is a lie. God's commands, friends, are not arbitrary. God's commands are purposeful. God's commands are not meant to punish us. No, just the opposite. God's commands are for our good. They're not meant to keep us from joy. God's commands are there to give us joy. Recently, I heard a pastor describe it this way. He said, have you ever known a couple, uh, a young married couple, and they said, you know what? We have all these rules, but we don't have anybody to obey them. Why don't we have some kids so that we have somebody to obey the rules? That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? No, it's exactly opposite. You don't have kids so you have someone to obey the rules. Once you have kids, you make the rules. Why? Because you love your kids. You want to protect them. You want to see them thriving. And friends, that's just how God is with us. He doesn't give us his commands just because he has some commands and he needs somebody to obey them. No, he gives us his commands because he loves us. He knows best how we should live. He made us. He knows better than we know how we should live. 
And so we can trust him and we can trust his word. And even when his commands are difficult, even when we don't fully understand why he commands, even when it's difficult or challenging or it costs us something, we can trust that his way is always best. So when we sin, friends, we're actually turning our back on God's grace. We're not just stepping across an arbitrary line. We're saying, no, God, no, I don't want this good and beautiful life you have planned for me. I think I have a better idea, and I'm taking my way, not your way. This is sin. And this passage says that all of us have sinned, and all of us are sinners. And this leaves us with a choice. And it's the same choice I faced when I broke the koozie. Remember the choice I I made? I could have thrown it under the bed and hid it, or I could have faced the music. This is the same choice that this passage tells us we have. It's conceal or confess. We can either try to conceal what we've done, pretend it didn't happen, or try to justify it, or we can confess to what we've done. These are the two options this passage lays out before us. As we already saw in verse 8 and 10, One option is to conceal our sin, to claim that it never happened, to try to convince ourselves and others that we're not sinners. Now, this first option is what comes naturally to us, isn't it? And we're in good company. Every human that's ever lived has fallen into this trap. It started with Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what happened when they disobeyed God? What's the first thing you can shout it out? What's the first thing Adam and Eve did after they disobeyed God? They hid. Exactly. They hid thinking that they could... Uh, hide themselves from God. They could conceal their sin. But then they realized that God already knew. So what's the second thing they did? They blamed. They blamed others. Exactly. They pointed to others. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. They tried to justify what they had done. And friends, this is what we do too. It is. We, We try to hide our sin. And when it comes out that we can't hide it, we try to justify it. Because we don't want to be wrong. We want to be right. We want to be righteous, and we want people to know that we're righteous. I'll give you a a personal example uh, that happened at our house the other day. And this is kind of a tiny, small uh, thing, but I think it's going to help explain what I'm talking about. So my lovely wife, Joanna, she's right over here. She knows I'm going to tell the story, by the way. Uh, we, We have two different opinions on what you should do with measuring cups in the kitchen after you use them. Okay, told you this is really important, right? Two different opinions. So the way it works for Joanna is she uses the measuring cup and then she says, well, I'm going to put it in the dishwasher because there's a chance I may not need it again until after we run the dishes. If I do need it, I'll just pull it out and wash it then. If not, I get to save myself the trouble. Meanwhile, I think once you use a measuring cup, it's a pretty good chance you're going to need to use it again, especially if you're like me and you use the half cup uh, every single morning for your oatmeal. So you should just wash it right afterwards and put it in the cabinet. Two different ways of approaching a problem. One clearly right. (laughs) One clearly wrong. I I am being careful, Steve. I don't want to say which one's wrong, but it rhymes with Moana. (laughs) So we've been kind of going back and forth on this a little bit, having some, you know, discussions about uh, how to treat the measuring cups. And anyway, I... I came up with a solution. I'm a creative guy. I came up with a solution. You know what I did? I bought my own set of measuring cups. (laughs) Everybody's happy, right? She can put hers in the dishwasher. I have my own. Well, uh, over Christmas, our daughter Grace was home from college, and she and Joanna were in the kitchen. I was in the living room, 
And I heard Grace open, open the cabinet and say, why do you have so many measuring cups? <laughs> and my precious wife uh, replied loud enough for me to hear in the other room, because your dad has to have what he wants right then. <laughs> and what do you think your holy, kind, patient executive pastor did? I mouthed off is what I did. <laughs> Equally loudly, I said, well, I wouldn't have had to buy new measuring cups if your mom would wash them every now and then. I have achieved a high degree of sanctification. Obviously a silly example, but it reveals something about my heart, doesn't it? What it reveals is I don't want people to think I'm selfish. I don't want people to think that I'm wrong. I want people to think I'm righteous, and I'm going to try to hide, hide it, cover it, conceal it, or blame somebody else if there's no other option. But it's not just me. Be honest. No show of hands here. No show of hands here. But have you ever done something that you know is wrong and then tried to hide it from somebody else? Have you ever treated someone unkindly and you knew you treated them unkindly, but you tried to justify, it, justify yourself by saying that they started it? Have you ever acted selfishly and then tried to cover it up by saying, I was just standing up for my rights, man? Well, you don't have to raise your hand because I'll raise mine. I've done all three. It's our nature to conceal our sin. But this passage tells us this is a dead-end road, friends. You're not fooling anybody, least of all God. And it only leads to shame and pain. I promise there is relief coming, and here it is. There's another option. This passage says that concealing our sin is not our only option. Instead, we can do what verse 9 says and confess our sin. Verse 9 says we can confess our sin. And it's really interesting. The Greek word that's translated confess literally means same word. Same word. When we confess, what we are doing is we're speaking the same word about our sin that God speaks about our sin. We acknowledge to ourselves we acknowledge to God, and when appropriate, we acknowledge to others that we have sinned and we are sinners. We stop trying to hide. We stop trying to conceal. We stop saying, hey, that was just a slip up. We recognize that we are without excuse. Now, I know this feels really dangerous, doesn't it? Because the reason we try to conceal our sin in the first place is we don't want to face the consequences. We don't want to face the consequences from God or from other people, and so we hide because in our mind, confession leads to consequences. Think about a courtroom. If you confess to a crime in a courtroom, what happens? You get punished. And so if you're on trial, you don't confess. You deny, 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 and you hope that you can fool the jury or maybe get off on a technicality because confession leads to consequences in a courtroom. But in God's kingdom, friends, the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite. In God's kingdom... Confession leads to cleansing. In a courtroom, people are motivated not to confess because they don't want to face the consequences. But I think a better image for this is a doctor's office. Let me paint the picture for you. Let's say that your mom died of cancer, her mom died of cancer, and her mom died of cancer. And now you find yourself having the exact same symptoms that those three generations of women had. And you know that you have a lethal tumor growing inside of you, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, how are you doing? Are you going to say, I'm fine? Are you going to conceal these symptoms from your doctor? Of course not. Why? 
Because when it comes to cancer, confessing doesn't lead to consequences. Not confessing leads to consequences. In fact, confessing your condition to the doctor is the only way that you can experience the healing that the doctor can provide. And friends, in the same way, confessing our sins to God is the only way we can experience the healing that he wants to bring in our lives. Look at verse 9. This is the heart of the passage and the heart of the sermon. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, if we say the same word about our sin that God says, we agree with him and we repent. Repent means to turn from our sins and toward God. When we do that, he is faithful, friends. He's reliable. He's worthy of our faith. And he will do what he's promised. And he's promised in this passage to do two things. Forgive us and purify us. First, to forgive us. The word that's translated forgive here means to release this is God, standing, God saying as our judge, I find the defendant not guilty. This is God as our father saying, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I taken your sin away from you. Praise God. When we confess our sins, he is faithful, friends, to forgive us. That punishment that we deserved, gone. The shame and the guilt, gone. Our record, clean. Our future, Right, God is faithful to forgive. And we need some amens right there. Can we celebrate that, church? God is faithful to forgive. And you might be asking, is it just that easy? I just confess, I just repent, and God just automatically forgives my sins? How does that work? Well, a couple of verses later, John gives us the answer. First, in verse 1 of uh, chapter 2, he says, I write this so that you won't sin. He wants us to choose God's way. But then he says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is, and here's the key phrase, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The reason, friends, that confession leads to forgiveness is because our Savior Jesus gave his life on the cross to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, entire books have been written just on that phrase, atoning sacrifice. And so we can't explore all of the mysteries of the atonement today, but here's just a short version. God is good and God is just. He created the world. He created the, the universe perfectly and beautifully. And our sin has broken. It has marred God's good creation. And because he's just, because he's so committed to his holiness and the beauty of his good design, he cannot and will not stand by while sinful people ruin and mar and sabotage his good creation. Sin must be atoned for. It must be done away with. And one way he could have done that is by doing away with us. He could have just cast us out. The ones who had broken his good world, he could have cast us out. And friends, he would have been well within his rights to do that. But instead, in his great love for us, he made another way. God sent his son, Jesus, the righteous one, the sinless one, to give his life on the cross, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in a beautifully mysterious and deeply beautiful way, the death of Jesus, the righteous one, atoned for the sins of anyone and everyone who will receive Jesus Christ by faith. Anyone who will repent of their sins 
and come to him in faith. Now, if you've grown up hearing that, you think, yeah, 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 I've heard all that before. But if you are newer to faith, you may be thinking, John, that sounds harsh. I mean, what's the big deal? Why can't God just decide to forgive sins? Why does somebody have to die? I mean, my uncle just forgave the the koozie. No one had to die for that. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I broke the koozie, I overestimated the damage I had caused. In my mind, this was an expensive, valuable item and was going to be a big deal to my uncle. But we know he didn't care about the koozie, right? I overestimated the damage I had done. But when we sin, friends, far too often we significantly underestimate the damage we've caused. We underestimate the value of God's plan. We underestimate the beauty of his perfect creation, and therefore we underestimate the seriousness of our sin. So we say something like, well, I I, I slipped up. What's the big deal? We all slip up. Friends, when we think this way, I want to say this as kindly and lovingly as possible. God's word tells us we're wrong. God's word says that sin is a matter of life and death. And in his love, God says, I want to rescue you from that. The reason we don't recognize just how damaging sin is, is not because God is wrong. It's because our perspective is messed up. As one pastor put it, he said, the world is a very dark place and our eyes have adjusted. The world is a very dark place and our eyes have adjusted. Because we've become so accustomed to this darkness, we don't recognize how depraved we are, how broken we are, how sinful we are, and how damaging our sin is. Think about this. If you look at a mirror in a dark room, you don't notice any of the imperfections on your face, do you? But what happens when you turn on the light and you look right in the mirror? You see every blemish, every wrinkle. It's the same in our spiritual lives. When we look at ourselves in the darkness of this world, we look okay. But in the light of God's presence and holiness, we discover the shocking depth of our sinfulness. And we recognize that we deserve to be cast out. But then, but then when we look at the cross, we discover the shocking depth of God's love for us. The shocking depth of his grace. And we find that because of Jesus' atoning death, we can be forgiven. Praise God, we can be forgiven. God's faithful to forgive, but that's not all. Did you see in verse 9 that it says he'll do two things? forgive and to purify. You might think this is two ways of saying the same thing, but it's actually, it's actually a second level. I love this so much. God doesn't just forgive us. He purifies us from unrighteousness. He makes us clean. John's saying that God doesn't just refrain from punishing us. He actually cleans us up. If God is a judge, he doesn't just let us off on a technicality. He actually makes us innocent. He actually makes us righteous. If God is a doctor, he doesn't just say, hey, don't worry, I'm sure you'll be fine. No, he performs surgery. He removes the tumor. He cuts it out. He heals us. Now think back to how we define sin. Remember we said that sin isn't just stepping across an arbitrary line. Sin is turning our back on God's grace. It's choosing our way instead of God's way. And what that means is when we sin, it doesn't just make us deserving of punishment, which it does. It also means we're forfeiting the good life that God has for us. We're missing out. And so when we lie, we're not just stepping across a line. We're missing out on the beauty of a life of truthfulness. When we envy what others have, we're not just stepping across an arbitrary line. We're missing out on the beauty of a life of gratitude. 
when we engage in sexual behavior outside of the, the, the scripture-ordained bounds of a lifelong marriage between a husband and wife, when we, when we nurture lust in our hearts, we're not just doing something on the bad list. We are missing out on the beauty of God's good and perfect design for us. When we harbor a judgmental spirit, we're not just breaking a rule. We're missing out on the beauty of a life of receiving grace and extending grace. Do you see it, friends? When we, when we sin, it's not just an arbitrary line. We are, we are damaging ourselves and we're damaging others. And aren't you glad that God didn't just let us off the hook? He doesn't just look the other way, friends. He fixes the problem. He heals us. He cleanses us. When we confess our sins and turn to God, he cleans us up so that we can experience the good and the beautiful life that he has planned for us. We'll talk more about this in two weeks. Uh, but God not only justifies us, he also sanctifies us by his grace. He regenerates us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to live a whole new kind of life, to live a whole new way, to be in the world in a new way, a life of beauty and holiness and purity and friends, it is better than you can imagine. It's so good. Last fall, I went on a retreat with one of our mission partners, Buckner International, and my friend Chris Cato. Chris, are you here today? Here's Chris. Uh, Chris and I were there on this retreat together, and we got to do a lot of fun stuff. One of the fun things we did, I didn't tell Chris, there, I was going to show you a picture. Is that okay? Okay, good. <laughs> One of, the, one of the fun, sorry about that. One of the fun things we did was to go on a ride in something called a UTV. This is like a four-wheeler on steroids. And we went all over the place, including through this super wet, swampy track. And I have a picture of Chris and I when we got back. We were filthy. I don't know if you can see from far away, but just disgusting. And, and you certainly can't smell it, but it smelled terrible. Now, here's the thing. When we got back to the place where we were staying... I didn't need someone to tell me it was okay I was dirty. I needed to get clean. I wanted to get clean. I needed to get clean. And I cannot tell you how good it felt to sit around the fire that evening after a long, hot shower, totally and completely clean. Don't you want to feel that way? Don't you want to live that way? Friends, it's no good to walk around with mud all over you and pretend you're clean. God knows it, you know it, we know it. We're not clean. But you can be. <laughs> you can be. God is faithful. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And he will purify us from all unrighteousness for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, a heavy message. It's, it's weighty, but appropriately so. And we just want to confess to you today. We want to say the same word that you say about our sin. We haven't just slipped up. We have sinned. We have turned our back on your goodness. We are without excuse. We have, we're without hope, but for Jesus. And we thank you. We praise you so much that Jesus Christ gave his life for us to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you so much for your faithfulness that we can be forgiven, we can be purified. I pray for each and every person in this room today, Father, that you would help us to see and to know and to embrace 
your good love for us. Help us to turn from our sin and toward you. In Jesus' name.